Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. It is Easter Sunday, which is very exciting. And it's not just exciting because I came to church this morning having had no Easter eggs this year. Great response. I'm so proud of you guys. So I came to church this morning having had no Easter eggs this year. And then Babs, where are you, Babs? My new favourite member of CCM Reddish. Just put your hand up. Everyone else needs to aim for this level. Babs have brought me an Easter egg this morning. You have made my morning. I hope you know that. But even more exciting than Babs' Easter egg buying skills, uh, Easter Sunday is about when we remember that Jesus is risen. So I don't want to get distracted this morning. I want to get straight kind of stuck into the good stuff. Um, but for those of you who don't know the Easter story, who maybe haven't been around on Good Friday and so forth, I just want to give you a quick recap. So two days ago on Good Friday, um, we celebrated the fact that actually Jesus chose to let himself be killed. Uh, And the reason he did this was because we as humanity, we have messed up. Uh, We are broken, we've chosen to walk away from God and do it in our own strength and do it our own way. And in church, we call that sin. So that walking away from God, we call it sin. And none of us are good enough to fix that. Not even close. We can't afford to pay the price that's needed for that. Um, And so God sent Jesus to die so that each one of us could have that relationship with him again, to pay the price for us walking away, to pay the price for our sin so that we could come back to him. And so that's the kind of preamble to what's happened before Sunday. None of us were good enough to defeat the death and the brokenness that come in our lives, that hold us down sometimes, but Jesus was. And so he came to die for you and for me. But so far in the story that we're going to look at this morning, we've only had Friday. And without kind of Easter Sunday, Good Friday is actually kind of bad Friday, is the way we should be thinking about it. Um, And at this point in the story, when we pick up with the disciples, they've only had the bad bit. And they are absolutely broken. They are gutted, okay? They have lost their best friend. They've lost this guy that they've been following around for three years. He's been their teacher, their friend. um, And then all of a sudden, he's gone, he's been killed. And they don't have a clue what is going on. And so we're going to come to Easter Sunday and we're going to read what happens from the Gospel of John. Uh, Now the Gospels are just kind of four historical accounts of Jesus' life and the word Gospel means good news. So we're going to get in and fingers crossed my technological ineptness is not... Oh, you're a star, Tim. Good work. Um, So John 20, it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now, I want to pause us at this bit so we know who is in our story. We've got Mary, we're happy with that. We've got Peter, they call him Simon Peter, we just call him Peter. And then you've got the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, um, I always think John is very unhelpful. We're reading John's Gospel. John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which I think is a little bit cocky, but that is absolutely fine. Um, It's always a bit confusing when he talks about himself in the third person. Um, And Jesus obviously loved all his disciples equally. But one of the things to probably point out here is that there were three disciples, that was Peter, James and John, who were kind of like Jesus' best mates. So they were his closest circle, they were with him in all the key moments, Um, and two of them here, Peter and John, they're Jesus' best friends and they're the people that we're reading about in the story. 
And so I don't know if you want to bring to mind your best friends. I know many of you will think of me, I'm sure. Um, but bring to mind your best friends. That is who they have got in their minds as we're going through this. Thank you, Tim. So Peter and the other disciple, which is John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but John outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now again, I think this is very classic John, very cocky John. Um, This is the most important story the universe has ever told. It is all about Jesus, and he's like, yeah, but I could run faster. Like That's all he wants to point out to us here, which anyway, I think is a bit petty, but that is fine. And I think what's happening here is they're running because they're desperate to know what has happened to their mate. They've just spent the last couple of days absolutely broken. They've followed this guy for three years. They thought he was the one, the Messiah. They were um, literally with him day in, day out. And then he's died and they don't have a clue what has happened. And then Mary turns up and he says his body's gone. Now, first of all, they're probably thinking, has his body been nicked? Do we need to go and have the guys who've nicked his body? Or maybe they're thinking there might be a little bit of hope because they know Jesus talked about coming back again. I don't really know, but there is something here that they are desperate to find out what's going on. And I wonder if that's just, it's a bit of a good lesson for us this morning, that sometimes that desperation is what can lead us to more faith. But we're going to go on, five to eight. So he bent over, um, this is John, and looked in the strips of linen lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. He strewed the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple had reached the tomb first. John also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, you can feel the tension in this bit of the story. You can feel that John is clearly the wimpy one. He's got to this tomb. I don't know if you ever did that as a kid. You went to like a cave or something like that, and then you looked inside like, actually, it's a bit scary. Uh, there could be a risen Jesus in there. There could be someone who's stolen risen Jesus' body in there. Who knows? I'm going to be a bit hesitant. But Peter, as we see throughout the Gospels, is a bit of daredevil. He's got a bit more confidence. So he goes straight in there for it. Um, and in and amongst all the tension of this moment, I think there's one absolutely bizarre detail that I want to draw your attention to. And that is, why would John bother to tell us how Jesus has left his clothes? Have you ever noticed that when you've read this story? Why is that important? Okay, Jesus has just been put to death in the most horrendous way possible. And now a few days later, his body's gone. Maybe he's risen. Maybe his body's been nicked. Who knows? Peter and John are heartbroken. They're desperate to find out what's happened to their best mate, who they knew was so much more, but then died, and it is even what he said even true. They don't know. It's been a complete emotional roller coaster, and they feel the need to say how Jesus has folded his clothes. I'm like, John, do you not think we've got more important things to worry about than how Jesus has folded his clothes? Or that the cloth was separate. If you're reading along in your Bibles and you've got the NLT or the SV or some of the older NIVs, it actually says that the cloth was folded separately. Now, the honest answer is, I do not know. I do not know why John has laboured this point about how the clothes are folded. And a lot of people would probably say it is just a piece of cloth. But some commentators would note there's a Hebrew custom of the time of when a meal was finished, the way a master would show to his servants that he was done, that he was finished, is he'd take his napkin. Uh, Now, they wouldn't have the little paper serviettes that we have now. They just had cloths. And he'd throw it onto the table. It was a way of the master telling his servants he was finished, he was done. 
And as I said, if you look in other translations, like the NLT or the ASB, it says the cloth was folded up in place by itself. Now, many of you will know Jesus was a carpenter, so he was in ministry from the age of sort of 30 to 33, but for about 10, 15 years before that, he worked as a carpenter. And carpenters at the time had a custom that when they were in someone's home uh, and they'd done whatever they'd done, whether that's a table or a chair or a desk or whatever it is that they've made, they would take a cloth and they'd wet it and they'd wipe all the sweat off their face and they'd wipe all the sawdust off the table or the chair or whatever it was. And then they'd fold that wet cloth up on the table to show the person they'd made the item for that it was finished and that it was done. Now, I don't know why Jesus... Has, um, uh, sorry, why John has commented on how the linen was left. I don't. The Gospels are historical books. We can verify them as historically accurate. What I'm dipping into now is more speculation. But I don't get why John would make the point about it unless it meant something. And I think this was a helpful reminder. It was a statement to the disciples to remind them of what Jesus had said two days earlier when he hung on the cross. When he said, it is finished. The job is done. I've done it. I think it was a statement because when you look at verse 8, it said John saw it and he believed. Now, I don't regularly walk around looking at just folded up T-shirts and all of a sudden believe. I think this was Jesus making a statement to say it is finished. The job that I've come to do, I've done it. And you know, when uh, when you get your head around what sin is, Um, how broken we are, how much we all mess up, I do on a regular basis, how our lives can just be so full of pain and anxiety and hurt and damaged relationships and just so much mess. Those words take on such a new power, such an incredible power. It is finished, that Jesus has done it. He has come so that all that stuff is under his command He has broken the power of all those things, the power of death and pain and anxiety and depression and suffering, all of that. Jesus is coming and says, actually, I've finished this job. I've done it. And now we know that end result. We know that if we turn our hearts to him and we follow him genuinely, the war is won. Nothing can change that. That big war, it is won. The big story, the big picture. Jesus' grand narrative, it is sorted. It is finished. He has won it. But what I just want to spend a bit of time looking at this morning is what does that mean for us now? What does it mean for us today? Because we know that the war is won, but we also all know that there are a lot of battles in life. The big war is won, but there's a lot of little battles that we face day in, day out, that we can still win or lose. There's a lot of those battles where work is hard, you're struggling with your mental health, you've had a broken relationship, whatever it might be. They are still battles, and I think we can learn a bit more from this chapter. So I'm just going to look at verse 19, if that's all right, Tim. Um, So on the evening of the first day of the week, so that Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked in fear of the Jewish leaders. And I think what we get is a really good glimpse into human nature here. Um, The disciples, they're scared They're confused and they're doubting. You know, life has been turned completely upside down for them. They've followed Jesus for three years. They've believed in everything he's said. They've done their best to follow him. And then all of a sudden he's been killed and it looks like he's lost. And they're like, have we put our trust in the wrong person? Maybe they're angry. They're grieving the loss of their friend. They're facing a really uncertain future. And they're scared. They're scared of the people around them because the Jewish leaders have just killed Jesus. They probably think that they're going to come for the disciples next. They know all the stuff that Jesus taught them, but they're probably struggling to believe it. 
And I don't know if there's anyone here this morning who is feeling that, feeling confused, feeling anxious, maybe angry. Maybe you're facing a bit of an uncertain future. Maybe you kind of know in your head all the stuff that Jesus has taught, but you're just struggling to live it out like it's real. And you feel like you're losing all those little battles. We know Jesus has won the war, but there's all these battles that I just feel like I'm losing day in and day out. Let's carry on reading. Thank you, Tim. Um, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And I love this bit because obviously all the doors are locked, no one can get in, and Jesus just appears. That's a pretty cool trick. Um, But aside from that bit, I want you to notice the first thing that Jesus says to them is peace. Peace be with you. And then he repeats those words again later on. And we're going to look at Thomas now in 24. So this is later on. It's a similar story. Thomas wasn't with the disciples. um, And the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Now, this is the passage that um, gets Thomas his nickname of Doubting Thomas. Um, And I think that is a really, really unfair nickname. I think he gets absolutely shafted in history because I think a better name for Thomas would be Honest Thomas. Because let's be honest, hands up if you've never had doubts like that before. I can't see any hands going up. I think we've all felt like that at some point. And Thomas gets absolutely torn apart in the history books for being Doubting Thomas. But I just think he is Honest Thomas. Let's keep reading, Tim. A week later, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. And again, the doors were locked, but Jesus appeared. And again, the first thing he says is, peace be with you. And then if we skip on just to the last verse there, Jesus says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believed. I think the first thing you need to know this morning, if you're kind of feeling like the disciples, if you're feeling confused and anxious, you're facing an uncertain future, you don't know what's going on, is actually the first thing Jesus wants you to know is peace. He wants peace to be with you. But then he makes this observation. And I want you to notice this isn't a command from Jesus. He's not telling the disciples what to do. He's not having a go at Thomas. He's just making a statement of saying, actually, we are most blessed when we believe. He's just telling us how the world works because the world throws all sorts of rubbish at us. Absolute mess. Some of it's our own fault. A lot of it in my life is my own fault. But some of it isn't our fault, whether that's natural disasters. Maybe it's the cancer diagnosis, the lost job, the relationship breakdown, the anxiety, the constant feeling of just not having enough time and being swept away with life. We can let these things absolutely cripple us. How do we deal with that? Because, you know, when you become a Christian, life doesn't magically kind of just get better and everything all of a sudden becomes okay. Actually, circumstances might get harder. So how do we win those little battles? Well, Jesus says we're most blessed when we believe in him. And I think what he's getting at is that when we learn to follow him, we can learn that peace, that joy, that contentment. And so when the circumstances of life are rubbish, we can still be blessed and we can still be at peace and we can still know joy. We can weather any storm that life can throw at us. Now, I wonder if any of you, um, have you ever asked the question, how on earth did Jesus endure the cross? This is something that used to puzzle me a lot as a kid because I was like, surely he was God. Surely he could have just stopped it at any point if he'd have wanted to. 
the most terrible suffering that we can possibly imagine. You know, nails driven through his body, having to pull himself up to take every single breath, unimaginable pain, and knowing at any moment he's God and he could have stopped it. Hour after hour. Most of us couldn't even watch something like that, let alone go through it. Yet the Bible tells us Jesus was fully human and he experienced that as a human and he didn't stop it. I just want to look very quickly at Hebrews 12, verse 2. It says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And it took me so long to get my head around this verse. Like, what does that even mean? That humiliation of being stripped and ridiculed, the lacerations, the thorns on his head, the unbelievable lightning bolts of pain every time he pulls himself on the spikes, hour after hour. How do you do that? It's because he knew the joy of what was going to come after. He knew the joy of what would come when we could be in right relationship with him again. He was able to endure the worst suffering that we can imagine because he wanted us to know that joy. And you know, if Jesus was here this morning and he is here, I think what he would say to you, and I've stolen these words from the Bible, so I know it's what he would say to you. In John chapter 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, those words this morning are direct from Jesus to you. That's why he endured the cross because he wanted you to know the joy that he lived with. He wanted you, Nikki, to know that joy. You, Katie, to know that joy. You, Mark, to know that joy. God intends that the joy that Jesus knew that kept him on the cross, despite all he was going through, God wants that joy to be your joy as well. That is incredible. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what was unlocked on Easter Sunday for us, that we too now can know that peace and that joy and that hope no matter what. The problem we have is it doesn't just happen. We can't just pray a prayer and boom, all of a sudden everything's okay. It doesn't work like that. But it's what it means to grow as a Christian, to go on that journey with Jesus, to train ourselves. It's active. It takes work. It involves learning and training our minds to know that joy and that peace and that hope. Paul kind of calls it running the race. We sometimes call it discipleship. We call it apprenticeship to Jesus. We give it lots of different names, but it's just learning to follow him. And we too can know that joy and that peace and that contentment. So how do we love Jesus? How do we learn that? We follow his commands. Um, I was having a great little family catch up yesterday uh, with my sister who's doing a psychology and philosophy degree. And she was telling me about all the different things that she was learning. And I think it's fascinating that psychology and neuroscience are only just catching up with what Jesus taught 2,000 years Ago. So one of the things that my sister was uh, explaining to me um, as we were talking about it, uh, I think it was last week actually, um, but um, we are only recently learning that the neurons, so neurons are the cells in your brain, and every time that they fire, when they fire in groups, they form stronger pathways that they call neural pathways. Um, so for example, when you're starting to learn to ride a bike, those groups of cells aren't used to firing together. So you're all over the shop and you fall over and you put your face in the gravel and you wibble and you wobble and it's just an absolute mess. But then over time, as those cells get used to firing together over and over again, it forms pathways in your brain. So that now when I ride my bike to work, I don't even have to think about it. It just happens. My brain has learned. And so now riding a bike is easier than falling off. Now, it's easy to think about this with regards to that, but what Jesus knew 2,000 years ago is that the same is true for our thoughts 
and all of our other actions. So when Jesus commands us, for example, to rejoice in suffering, the first time I read those verses, when I first became a Christian, I was like, what is that about? Why would I want to rejoice when I'm suffering? I'm feeling rubbish right now. I want to tell everyone that I'm feeling rubbish. I want to talk about how I'm feeling rubbish. I don't want to rejoice. I don't want to sing praises. I don't want to talk through happy verses in the Bible. I just want to be miserable. And so I would stay miserable. But then as you start to put these commands into practice and it's learning, it's not easy to start with. Those cells in your brain, they fire off and they start to form pathways and your brain remodels itself to make you a more joyful person. As we learn to practice joy, we become more joyful. It's almost as if Jesus knew what he was talking about when he was commanding us to be joyful so that we could then know more joy. And the same is true for um, practicing trusting in him to reduce our anxiety and give us peace, to um, forgiveness and generosity. As we practice that forgiveness, we become more forgiving people. And so it has less of a power over us when someone hurts us. As we practice that generosity, we become more generous people. And the neuroscience and the psychology is only just catching up with what Jesus knew all those years ago. You know, we know he is an incredible moral teacher, but I think we can forget Jesus was probably the smartest guy who ever lived. He knew the science better than anyone. His way is the best way to live for the here and now. Now, why am I talking about that on Easter Sunday? Is probably what you're all sitting there thinking. I get that. I think we can forget that the resurrection has an explosive power in our lives, not just for our eternal states, it's not just that Jesus has saved us, but actually for the here and now, for life in this moment, in all the battles and the rubbish and the suffering and the pain and the anxiety and the mess. In Jesus' case, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of relationship with us gave him such joy that he could get through the cross. I want that much joy in my life, that I could weather any storm like that. You know, Jesus has come so that we can have life and life in all its fullness, that we can know that same joy no matter what the world throws at us. He has won it. He has defeated death and darkness and sin. He has brought life and light and love into this world, but we've got to choose it. It doesn't just happen. We can't just click our fingers and say, yeah, great, fix the problem. We've got to choose him. And we know when we choose his way, that way of light and life and love, if we choose his way, we can know that joy and that contentment and that peace. And that is what I want for my life. More and more. To go on that journey with Jesus and learn that more and more every day. And so, if you want to jump back up, Master Luke. um, Master Luke, I don't know where that's come from. Um, We can know, ultimately, that Jesus has won the war. We know that this morning. Okay, we know that he is won over sin and death. By rising again on Easter Sunday, he has broken every chain, but not just for that big war, but also for the everyday battles. He has conquered sin, he's conquered death, he's conquered pain, anxiety, whatever it might be, so that we are free of that if we choose him. And the door is open for us this morning. The door is open, that opportunity to learn from him and to start bringing that fullness into our lives, to take on the battles of this life and not just get through them, but to really thrive. You know, that's what Easter Sunday is all about. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is.